Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Brett First, PsyD, LMFT. He specializes in treating adult and adolescent adoptees who struggle with a variety of issues, both related and not related to their adoption. Adoptees are almost twice as likely to suffer from addiction, mental health, ADHD, and a variety of other mental health-related issues than their non-adopted counterparts, while also experiencing scarcity of specialized services to help them. To better serve this population, Dr. Brett has created some of the first treatment protocols specific to adult and adolescent adoptees and frequently speaks to and trains other clinicians around the country to better serve this population. In addition to his adoption work, he focuses on using a gestalt lens to help clients find their authentic selves through the exploration of their attachments, external messages, and most importantly, who they are not. Dr. Brett holds a BS in child development from the University of California, Davis, and an MA in marriage and family therapy from Chapman University, and a doctorate in couples and family therapy from Alliant International University. Today, we talk about the work he does with adolescent and adult adoptees. Welcome, Dr. Brett. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time and giving me the platform. Yeah. So, you know, I know you have a few different specialties. One of the specialties you have is working with adult adoptees. Correct. Yeah. It's been kind of an interesting journey getting there in the first place, but yeah, adult adolescent adoptees. And for the most part, I came into it because I realized that services for adoptees kind of stop around like 16, maybe 18. The treatment population, the clinical population, the everybody population tends to kind of forget that they're adopted once they in adulthood. And if anything, the issues are just more complicated when they get to adulthood. They're still very much prevalent, especially if they didn't get you know, the treatment they needed when they were younger. So there's definitely that, that need out there. And then being an adoptee myself, even if I haven't struggled in a lot of the same ways, maybe as my clients, you know, I definitely still feel like there wasn't a lot explained. Um, there wasn't a lot given. Up until recently, adoption was kind of this very like hush-hush thing. And even still, in a lot of cases, it is. So being able to help and talk and be open about it and have a a platform like this one to say like, hey, look, there is specialized help out there. It's really important. And I think in terms of thinking about definition, so you're talking about individuals who are either adopted at birth or in childhood and Mm -hmm. issues might come up during adolescence or in adulthood for someone who has had that history, right? Yeah, exactly. And it includes the foster care as well. And it comes up a lot in those like adolescent, young adult, even like older adult years, because that's when attachments take on a different meaning. That's when it goes from more than just like family to now we're introducing romantic or like higher stakes friendships or like those sort of things. And so that's where now that you have your own like agency and what attachments you create, a lot of that stuff can start to come out because you're like, I want this, but why am I acting this way? You know, all that sort of stuff. I know you, the youngest you see are adolescents, but if we could rewind even before that, thinking about, you know, if there are parents listening who have adopted children What are interventions that are important in terms of just emotional development for those children before adolescence? I mean, could we maybe talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about that first in terms of like, what are those things that are important? How do you think about language around that before even adolescence? Yeah, absolutely. So a big one is 
understanding and acknowledging the fact that the attachments and the attachment style and all that kind of stuff are going to be, that's a very clinical term, they're going to be wonky. So one thing that people struggle to understand, it is a little bit, it sounds controversial, but it's not. It's, it's well-established that adoption is trauma, right? No matter what the circumstances, whether it's at birth, like when I was born, my adoptive parents were right there when I was born, whether it's that or later or international or whatever, at the base level, adoption is a trauma. So there are going to be traumatic responses to the trauma. So an adoptive child is going to have some different unhealthy attachment styles, you know, however you want to call it, right? Usually in the reactive realm of things. But being able to educate them and speak to them at the level. And kids understand a lot more than we expect them to when they're younger. But having that conversation, calling it for what it is, right? A lot of adoptive parents, and understandably so, I think often have a tendency to try and make everything seem normal, right? You want your family to be cohesive. You want everything to be great. And you want this sort of abnormal beginning, which really isn't abnormal, to feel normal. Right. And so we can sugarcoat a lot of things. We can ignore a lot of things. We can think, oh, everything is just going to be fine. And they're a normal kid and all that kind of stuff, which they are. They are a normal kid, but they're reacting to an abnormal situation. And so to kind of give them the words for that and give them the understanding of that and say, hey, I think you're acting this way because you really do want to be connected to your friend, Bobby. But at the same time, that might be scary for you. So you're getting this push pull, right? Like having that understanding, which really starts with educating the adoptive parents, which I feel like has been missing some key elements, at least in the, in the work that I've done with adoptive parents and even like adoptive parents of younger kids, they just were like, we never knew. One thing that comes up a lot is adoptees just by being adopted are twice as likely to have addiction issues, mental health contacts, psychiatric issues, ADHD, PTSD. And no one really knows why our research can't pinpoint because there's so much variety in adoption, but just by being adopted, you're twice as likely to have those things. And a lot of adoptive parents are like, we never knew. No one ever told us that that was going to be a possibility. And so when they grow up, all these issues start showing up in more significant ways, it seems completely out of the blue. So maybe what you're talking about in terms of the education of the adoptive parents, right? Mm -hmm. But then also helping the family develop a mm -hmm. language around their family history, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think maybe some listeners might be like, oh, trauma, this was a trauma. And I, I think some people are resistant to maybe hearing that that's a traumatic experience. Yeah. And that's, that's, what's been kind of controversial about it. And there's been pushback around it, but I do think it is, it is important to understand that just because it is a trauma doesn't mean that it's not insurmountable. doesn't mean that it's not something that can be worked on. And it's more about like, not necessarily just telling the kid that they were adopted, having them understand what adoption is. It's having them understand what the impact of adoption can be on their life. Because like my parents, I, from the time I can remember, I knew that I was adopted. And that's the case for most of my clients that I work with, at least nowadays. Like the whole secret closed adoption thing isn't as much a thing as it used to be. Oftentimes we get international adoptees that don't have, you know, bio information, but that's a, a different category. But in terms of educating the child on what these feelings might be, what this reactivity might look like, how they can have two fighting parts of themselves. If I want to connect, but it scares me, those sort of things of like, it is a trauma. You don't have to call it a trauma to a child. That's a big word, but acknowledge that it's going to have an impact, but that if you can address that impact, it doesn't have to have a lifelong impact, right? You can have a perfectly normal attachment style and all that sort of stuff. Right. But maybe using maybe the word attachment trauma. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so that, that kind of changes it a bit, right? It still falls under that category of trauma, which again, like I understand why that, that's a scary word, but a lot of adoptees have kind of come to that word to almost combat, it's called like a gratitude stigma where people 
assume or push people on the outside of like the family system, even the family system itself say like, well, aren't you so grateful that you were adopted? Right? Aren't you so grateful that you, you have this and it could have been something else. You could have been so much worse. And it's like, yes, definitely on paper, right. It could have been worse, but at the same time, there are still things about this that I have problems with or that I'm struggling with, but we see it on a dichotomy when they hear that gratitude stigma, then it's like, I can only be grateful. I can only be appreciative of this and I can't be appreciative and also struggle with the impact of it and attachment and da, 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 right? So that's kind of where like the push in the adoptee community has been like, no, it's a trauma. We can get past it, call it attachment trauma, whatever. But it was impactful, right? In some sort of way, there was a break, there was an attachment break, you know, whatever you want to call it, an oxytocin break, whatever, it happened. Um, And so it did to say that it didn't happen or to pretend like it didn't happen and everything's fine and we're all the same and everyone's equal is kind of like sugarcoating it, right? Which isn't helpful, which then they grow up and they end up in my office of like, I think this really did impact me. I just didn't know that it could impact me. Right. Maybe we can talk about kind of the developmental stages of like sure. adolescence into adulthood and different stages of life transitions and how that might show up in your office mm-hmm. for adoptees. So we had talked about like adolescence and mm-hmm. complex relationships and how that might come up during adolescence for an adoptee. And so maybe we can talk a little bit more about that sure. and other life transitions. So one of the things that I focus on a lot, so I come from what's called the Gestalt perspective, which focuses a lot on authenticity. And so one thing that we'll see early on is like high levels of inauthenticity in an attempt to either fit better in a situation or protect themselves more from an attachment injury, kind of take like the, the almost like normal high school experience where everyone's anxious and no one knows who they are as a social being yet. And then amplify that, right. Of like, I really don't know who I am. I really don't know how to connect. I really don't know. And I don't have insight. I don't have the words to explain why this feels so rubber bandy, you know, yo-yo effect for me. You know, we start to see it show up then there might be like hyper attachment relationships. There might be like total isolation from relationships you know, we can start to see them try and find a way to either hold on to attachment or navigate or avoid attachment out of safety. Both of those are safety mechanisms. One says, I'm going to hold on as tight as I can so you don't leave me. The other says, I'm not going to get invested because if I don't get invested, I can't get hurt. And then there's reactive, which is a combination of both. But we see a lot of those like inauthentic mechanisms come up, things that you put on as a show to protect yourself from hurt. And then those things continue and get reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. We also can see substance abuse show up. People can become attached to their substance, their drug of choice, as opposed to other people, right? Because it's a safety thing. It's always consistent. So we'll see a lot of that navigation issues in early high school, late middle school years, because that's, again, when like the stakes are higher. It's different than like a playground friend when you're in elementary school. Now this has like real implications. There's romantic attraction. There's complex friend relationships. There's status. There's all these other things that are now starting to develop. What about conflict with adoptive parents. I just wonder, you know, as an individual moves into adolescence, how that could shift for an adolescent adoptee. I've heard a lot of parents say like, oh, they were such a sweet kid. You know, they had like their temper issues and that sort of stuff. But like now it's just like completely 180 and it's gotten way worse. One thing that I've noticed, especially in like young adults, even, you know, like early 20s, young, like 18, 19, is parents will often take the brunt of the attachment reactivity. And when I say reactivity, it means like, you know, the hot, cold, come here, stay away, I hate you, don't leave. Because the parent relationship is a unique one in terms of attachment. The parent relationship, no matter what you do for the rest of your life, even if you never talk to them for the rest of your life, they will still be your parents, right? They will still hold that title. 
there's really nothing you can do about that. So the normal push and pull or the normal distance that someone with attachment issues, or let's say adoptees, would be able to have from a friend, right? I just never going to talk to that friend anymore. I'm going to move away. You can't do that with your family. So what happens is parents usually become these like punching bags. They can bear the brunt of a lot of the attachment reactivity or attachment abuse or whatever word we want to use because one, that relationship can take a lot more stress than like a friend relationship, right? Because they're your family. They're going to stick around. But two, it's that that title can't change really. So it's inflexible in certain ways and they can't regulate by turning it up and down like they might do with everyone else in their world. Okay. So moving on into other life transitions, what would kind of be a next stage that you might see somebody come into your office? So usually once we like get through like the high school phase, right, where relationships have the highest stakes so far, but not like the highest you could have. Sometimes in college, we'll see a lot of that stuff come up, college age kids, because then they're a little bit more independent, right? They're able to navigate these things without oversight or without input really from the family as much. And so we'll see that independence. Usually if they're already kind of in this like inauthentic process, it'll hyperspeed that. Because when you go off to wherever you're going to go, you have a job, right? Even if you don't go to college, you have a job somewhere and those people don't know you from before or college, no one knows you from before. You have this opportunity to kind of remake yourself. And unfortunately, a lot of times they will double down, triple down on the inauthentic persona because they feel like they need to increase their safety and kind of front load it. And if they front load it, then no one will know the difference, right? If it was how they were the whole time they've known them. The problem with that is that that is unsustainable. The more inauthentic you are, the more anxious you become. There's a tension between like your authentic self and your persona. And the more you get away, the stronger the tension becomes. And eventually it sort of implodes or you can't hold it up or you run away from relationships because you know it's not sustainable in real time. Like if you're getting into a romantic relationship, you can't sustain it for long periods of time because that person is with you a lot. They know you. There's a certain level of depth that's required to have a relationship. So there might be a lot of jumping around, that sort of thing. And that's where some of those self-soothing mechanisms can come in as well. That substances, eating, gambling, you know, anything like that, that might self-soothe because you feel that tension all the time. You feel that anxiety all the time, trying to figure out how to navigate each situation instead of being more authentic and kind of fluid in each one. But then we definitely see it. I've had a lot of uh, adult adoptees reach out to me and say, hey, I'm married. I might have a kid and I'm starting to notice these like patterns really become a problem. So It's different stakes for different people, but sometimes, yeah, with marriage, it's like we've been married for like two, three years, maybe five years, even 10 years, whatever. And it's like, this problem is really starting to wear my relationship down. And a lot of times they never think of adoption as a primary issue because they never told that it could be. They often were told like, no, it's fine. You're adopted and we love you just like you were our own, which is true. But that implies that you are the same, which you're not which is fine. It's just a matter of like navigating and there needs to be something different. So in like a marriage situation, oftentimes you're like, yeah, and I heard someone talking about adoption or I just looked up adoption because I felt like it might be it. And like, that's how I found you or that's how I thought to look it up or that's how I found these resources. You know, that sort of thing where they didn't really think of it as as a potential option in the beginning, but then it became one as they started researching. So again, unfortunately, there isn't like a unified service or services for adult adoptees or even adolescent adoptees or young adult adoptees. So people don't know that it can be something to work on or it can be an issue. I also wonder, it gets really complex when someone has their own child. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it depends on the individual, but there's so much that does get stirred up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a new type of attachment. You can have like family, you can have friends, you can have romantic a child is like a whole different level. Not necessarily in terms of intensity or anything. It's, just a, it's a completely different type. Almost everyone else you've like chosen 
to attach to, not, not family as much, but friends and romantic partners, pretty much the bulk of your life up until the point you have a kid, you've had a choice. With a child, it's this like instant oxytocin connection sort of thing. It's this attachment. You didn't really have a choice. You didn't be like, I'm going to have this boy and it's going to look like this and I'm going to attach to it this way, right? It, it just happened. And there really is no preparing for it. And so that, yeah, that definitely can bring up a lot of new attachment issues and all that sort of stuff. Some adoptees are like, they're like, I'm never going to adopt. Some adoptees are like, I'm definitely going to adopt. It can really go both ways. Some are just like, yeah, I could, I couldn't. But I've, I've heard a lot of like, no, I would never, which I always found interesting. And the reasons vary person to person. There really isn't like a unified reason why they say they wouldn't. But I always found that interesting. They're like, no, I wouldn't adopt. Maybe within that, there's this idea of like this discomfort about their own experience. Yeah. And lack of ability to even process their own experience right until they got help or whatever. But, you know, lack of ability to vocalize it, to experience it, to put another kid through that, you know, that sort of thing. Despite it not being like a lot, they're like, logically, yes, it, it makes sense to adopt. It's a great thing to do and all that. But emotionally, it's a different animal. Right. So one question I have for you is why it might be important if someone who is an adult or adolescent adoptee thinking about needing therapy, what would be some reasons why it would be helpful to have a therapist who specializes in this sort of thing? So there's a lot of, which is kind of how I got into specific adoption work was I work also in substance abuse treatment. And we were seeing a lot of adoptees come through and in a lot of ways, they were presenting very similarly in terms of their symptomology to other clients who aren't adopted, but the normal treatments weren't working as well. They weren't working at all in some cases. And there was a lot going on under the surface. So that's kind of where specialized treatment for adoptees of any age is really important because there's a lot that can look like other things. There's a lot of issues that can look like, oh yeah, everyone struggles with attachment to some degree, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not the case. It's a different story. And what's also important is that per our education, right, as therapists, as clinicians, a lot of that doesn't include adoptee-specific work. And so if you don't really know what you're doing with adoptees as a clinician, you can suggest or point or encourage things that aren't necessarily helpful, right? A lot of, like, let's take marriage and family therapy, right? It's a lot of systemic models, right? They really focus on, like, bring everybody, find your connection everybody, bring everybody in, all that kind of stuff. And I've had adoptees that say like, yeah, my therapist really forced me to like, go talk to my bio mom or like my therapist really, really wanted me to do this or that. And like, I wasn't comfortable with it. But in reality, like you don't have to go find your bio parents. You don't have to do any of that stuff if you don't want to, but that kind of clashes with a normal systemic model sort of thing. So even if you don't understand like where your education is lacking or where you might be pushing in the wrong directions, you're trying to be helpful, but it's not going to hit right on an adoptee as it would in a non-adoptee sort of situation. The other question is, you had shared your own personal experience. I also think about with any aspect of mental health treatment, but especially the addiction model, sometimes it's helpful or people are drawn to clinicians who've had similar experiences as they would. And so I guess this is a more general question, but I guess specifically for your specialty, I mean, I mean, you're clearly open about your own personal experience and why you choose to share that. There's two parts. One is in the authenticity work that I do in the Gestalt work, I firmly believe that I shouldn't ask something of my clients that I'm not willing to give myself or do myself, right? So I feel like I strive for authenticity a lot in my sessions, which often includes like sharing personal things because they're relevant and because it's my life and I'm a person and you're a person, all of that. And so 
I don't usually like harp on it a lot. I don't like, you know, force it in the first session. Like, Hey, I'm adopted too. Because I feel like that cheapens the whole thing. Because even if I am, which I am, might have way more dissimilarities and similarities to your story, which is why I love working with adoptees so much is that every story is truly unique. And there's a whole lot of variation. So selfishly, it keeps me engaged, right? Because there's a new puzzle, there's a new person, there's a new thing to connect to every time. But also it's important to understand that like, just because I am doesn't mean that yours is going to look the same. A lot of my understanding of attachment and all that only came when I was in college. I had my bachelor's in child development. I was a preschool teacher before I was a therapist. So a lot of that comes from there as opposed from like my own adoption experience, which has kind of been a growing understanding for myself as I've continued to do this work. So I share it because I feel like one is relevant to me, but also at the same time to say like, hey, yeah, this happened to me, but also yours can be different. Let's explore the differences. Let's, let's see what happens. Well, so if someone is listening who wants to learn more about the work you do, I'll make sure that mm-hmm. your information is on the episode description. Are there other resources for people who might want to learn a bit more about this? There's a couple of books. The one that's kind of like the gold standard is The Primal Wound, which has been around for a little while now. It talks about like that attachment wound and how it can kind of develop in adults and like that attachment trauma response and all of that. There are several good support groups. Most major cities have an Adoptees Connect group, which is a group just for adult adoptees run by Pamela Caranova, I believe her name is. She's kind of the orchestrator of all of that. And I believe she has like a memoir out as well, which I haven't read yet. She's helped me a lot and connected me a lot to a lot of things. And then there's a website called Grow Beyond Words, and they have a list of adoption competent therapists who are also adopted themselves. That's a list that I'm on as well. Um, but no it's a, idea that existed. Most people don't. It's wild. But it was a really cool project done by that group when they reached out to me a while ago when I was still working on my dissertation and stuff. And they have listings for pretty much every state for someone that, that can work with you in, in each of those states. So they're adoption competent therapists that are also adopted themselves. Great. Well, I'll make sure those resources are also listed in the episode description. So the list can learn a bit more before we say goodbye. I mean, this is such a complex topic and so much yeah. to talk about. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but I guess if you could leave the listener with last thoughts, what that might be. I always try and end with kind of this statement. So we all know the phrase blood is thicker than water. A lot of that's talked about how like the strength of family and family comes first and all of that. It's recently been learned that that is an incorrect translation of that statement. The original statement went, the blood of the chosen is thicker than the water of the womb. What that means is that the people that we choose to be our family are often closer to us than the family that we are given, right? We can still choose to have them be close as well. But at least for adoptees and for myself, it gives permission to explore those relationships and build those attachments out of your own choice. So the blood of the chosen is thicker than the water of the womb really means a lot to me and a lot of other adoptees as well, especially because it directly contradicts what we've been told is the true statement, which turns out isn't true. To have that choice is a really big deal and really important for a lot of people, for everybody, but I think especially for adoptees who aren't really given that choice. I love it. I didn't even ask you before to let you know we were going to talk about this last statement, but I'm like, that's (laughs) the best last statement I've heard in such a long time. So thank you for sharing. Absolutely. All right. Well, I appreciate you being on and for the work that you do. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. And I appreciate the platform again. I appreciate you doing this for everybody. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Bye. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, 
Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.